What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, we're back on a Tuesday afternoon edition of Jonathan Taylor Thomas talks Major League Baseball, Seattle Mariners review slash preview edition of the podcast. John Taylor is here of Fangraphs.com, as he is every single Tuesday. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? And good afternoon to Fisher. Yeah, he's he's good. He wants me to play with him, which is just exceedingly just great timing on his part. He wants to play tug of war with a stuffed parish. Give me that. Give me that. Uh, I'm doing well on this Tuesday afternoon. How about yourself? Not too bad. So, um... My girlfriend's dog also loves the whole tug thing and just is totally fine you just dragging it around the house and it pulling and not not winning tug. It never wins tug and it doesn't actually want to win tug. Does Fisher want to win or is Fisher just trying to get you to pull enough so that he he believes that he has a some sort of a sh- uh, a shot of winning? I think he wants to win and occasionally I will let him win. Um, just because otherwise it gets kind of boring if I'm just constantly, because otherwise he won't let go. You know, that's the other part of it. So sometimes I let him win just so he can let it go and then we can reset and I can start over again. But I, I think he enjoys all parts of it, the tugging, the chewing, the running around. He's, you know, he's got energy to get out, you know? I saw the picture you posted of um, Fisher destroying another, another poor, poor chew toy. Like he is, he's a monster and you must be stopped. Yeah, he really just, he treats these things with true violence. It's kind of incredible. It's, it's a weird thing where it's like you look, at, you look at most dogs and you're like, how on earth were you once a wolf? And then you see them tear apart a toy and you're like, oh, there is still a predator instinct somewhere deep buried within. It's mm-hmm. just overshadowed by cuteness. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what, have, uh, what have you found yourself reading? Have you gotten through your New Yorkers? as of yet no no okay. i'm running the risk of falling an entire year behind but I, i'm working uh assiduously to keep that from happening yeah don't. trying my best here <laughs> um they should shorten it honestly honestly like what are you doing new yorker like who who, who has time for that who well who the, has, yeah. the nice thing the nice thing about uh catching up on old new yorkers is that i can skip a lot of the news stories within that are no longer relevant which is also just great for my mental state and blood pressure because I can just skip every like Trump administration profile. Yeah. Because those people aren't relevant and not, not relevant, but I don't have to, I don't have to enrage myself learning about Bill Barr because he's not the attorney general anymore. And that's a very helpful thing for my mental state. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, don't forget folks, you can uh, go check out John's work and all the great people at fangraphs.com. So go subscribe there today if you have not already because the baseball season is quickly quickly around the corner the braves are playing the rays this weekend um and also go check out chase thomas podcast.com uh we're on instagram at chase double underscore thomas uh you can uh, follow me on twitter at chase double underscore thomas yeah it uh it, it overlaps there folks and uh if you are an apple podcast listener go uh, give us a five-star rating and review it helps um john speaking of the braves jake lamb we have our uh, Hechevara replacement in uh, Mr. Jake Lamb. Is, uh, is the offseason complete now for the Braves, now that they've added Arizona Diamondback, former Arizona Diamondback, Jake Lamb? I like how this is what you want to lead off with. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think the Braves offseason has been done for a while. I think Lamb is just a flyer on a guy who used to be, you know, he was an all-star, was three, four years ago at this point, just had injuries pretty much. Uh, turn him in the opposite direction. I think it's a worthwhile flyer because, as we talked about um, with regards to the Braves re-signing Marcelo Zuna, and then again, I, we touched on with Justin Turner, third base is really kind of one of the question marks uh, for this Atlanta team. Um, and that Austin Riley is definitely not a guy I think they feel 100% comfortable with. So I think Lamb, in that sense, is a flyer. And if there's anything there, maybe he's a guy who can be there as kind of insurance 
and not and not only if, if you know if Riley doesn't perform, but it, but also if Riley gets hurt because you would know the Braves' farm system better than I do. But I don't believe they really have any internal options there if if uh, if Riley goes down. So Lamb at least gives them an insurance policy there if things go wrong. I, you know, I don't think there's really anything more to it than that. It's just let's take a flyer on a guy who showed some talent once in the past and you know might still have something there if he can get past the injuries. But I, I don't really expect Lamb to turn into anything close to a productive major leaguer again. I mean, he's the injuries have been bad, and he just he hasn't really shown any ability to just make contact on a make either make contact or make consistent hard contact on a regular basis. I mean, you could do worse in terms of backups, but I, I still feel like this. You know, I mean, I, I I don't think you're under any impression that Jake Lamb is suddenly going to become the next well Justin Turner, but. You know, it, it's it's decent insurance for Riley, although I still think that third base is something the Braves are probably going to try to fix during the season if Riley just it does, does not turn out to be the guy. Yeah, it would be nice if Drew Waters or somebody like that could play third base, but um, that is it is not the case. There's not really an internal option. They have two great catchers in the pipeline, but um, a lot of pitchers, a lot of catchers, a lot of outfielders, not a, not a lot of third base talent. Um I don't know. I, I don't think there is going to be an in-house option. And, you know, it's if only there were a certain NL Central third baseman who's not happy um, in his current organization that uh, the team is always looking to sell low on their premier talent. If only there was a team that uh, might be interested in moving said great piece to a, a pseudo contender. The thing with this anonymous, handsome third baseman right. you're talking about for, for a team located in the NL Central is that the NL Central, I mean, even with the Cardinals getting Nolan Arenado and bringing back Wainwright and Molina, that division is so weak that I think Chicago's front office can probably talk itself into, let's see how the first half of the season goes. Let's see if we're actually still in the race. Because for as much as you know, we crapped on them for, for getting rid of Darvish, and deservedly so, that really was about getting rid of long-term commitments. And that's not really the case with Bryant, because there's almost no way that the Cubs are going to keep Bryant past this year. So there's, he's not really something they have to worry about salary-wise past 2021. I think if Bryant moves, it's more, like than, more likely than not at this point going to be a mid-season trade uh, if Chicago finds itself extremely out of the playoff picture in the Central and in terms of the wild card. But, that, I mean, that's, that's kind of the problem for any team that has Chris Bryant as a potential option, you know, if they want to upgrade a third base or maybe even at the outfield, although I, I don't know that I'd really want to acquire Chris Bryant and then plug him into, like, left field, is that Chicago should probably stay in the NL Central race simply by default because aside from St. Louis, the rest of those teams kind of have ceilings of around, you know, 82, 83, 84 wins. And even, even with this Cubs, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the Cubs eventually, I'm sure, in full, but even with their rotation kind of as weak as it is and, you know, the – the possibility that Brian and Baez, you know, don't hit again, they should still be able to hang around with that group. So, I don't know. I, I, if I if the Braves do get Brian, I think it would be in a midseason deal. Of course, the only problem there is he's going to come pretty expensive probably at that point. I'd also be curious if I know I know obviously the Braves have have Nancy Swanson at short, but if someone like Trevor Story becomes available, if the Rockies decide to move on from him around midseason, if it would make sense to grab him and move Swanson to third base, but. That's a little bit more of a kind of an out-of-the-box idea, I suppose, when Bryant is the easier solution. But it does seem like it's more likely to me that Story would be available midseason than Bryant. But who knows? We'll, we'll have to wait to see how the, how the season actually plays out. Yeah, we, we shall see. Um, the Oakland A's, a team that we were very frustrated with during our preview series for not really doing all that much um, and giving a IOU to Marcus Simeon, um, they signed Trevor Rosenthal and your old friend Mitch Moreland. Uh, what do you make of those two signings for the A's? Offensive threat, Mitch Moreland, Mitchy Two Bags. Love, love Mitchy Two Bags. Um, I think they're they're both good signings. Rosenthal is obviously a good reliever, although he has probably the highest boomer bust potential of any reliever who gets to sign this offseason. I mean, this is a guy who two years ago was completely unplayable with the Nationals, literally could not throw strikes. Last year was was suddenly great with the Royals. Um, Moreland is more just a useful bench bat against right-handed hit pitching. That's still what his greatest value is. He was really good in that role for the Red Sox. It seemed like he was useful in that role for the Padres. He's just a versatile piece. Versatile in terms of versatile is not really the right word. He's a good reserve because uh, he's not particularly versatile. All he can do is DH or play first base. But that's definitely something the A's could use anyway. It's just another good bench bat. 
But what I think these moves show, too, is that especially the Rosenthal one, which was billed as a one-year $11 million deal, but in reality is, I think, closer to one-year $4 million with a lot of deferrals. And that, coupled with the way they tried to structure a Marcus Semyon contract, coupled with the fact that this team really has not been active in the free agent market, as, as is always the case, really suggests that financially the A's are in an even worse spot than we, than they, we already thought they were. Which is saying a lot because most people already assume that the A's were broke or very close to it. And this really does suggest that they are having severe, either they're having severe financial problems or their ownership just has no interest in spending at all anymore. And either of those is not good to the point like this. The Roosevelt contract is at the point where I, I almost wish Rob Manford would come out and say, OK, we need to look at what's going on in Oakland because this is not a sustainable or tenable situation if you literally cannot afford to pay $11 million in one calendar year. That's not a large sum of money by any stretch of the imagination. And yet here the A's are trying to work in deferrals to a one-year deal. That's concerning. And it really suggests that uh, what's going on in Oakland is not something that has really a long, like has a a fix on the horizon. But this sounds more like a long-term problem, either with ownership or just a coupling of, you know, all the various issues that exist in Oakland with the stadium and with trying to find a new home and all that stuff. But it does just suggest to me that whatever is wrong with that franchise goes a lot deeper than just, you know, oh, we don't want to spend. It's like there's not wanting to spend, and then there's trying to to create a whole complicated series of deferrals for a one-year $11 million contract. That suggests that there's something far deeper at issue here with, with what's going on with the A's. Brett Gardner, a different side of the spectrum team, the New York Yankees and the Oakland A's. Um, he returns because Brett Gardner and Nick Markakis uh, unfortunately have to be members of their organization for the rest of you and I, like our, our lives, John. It, they, they will just be part of our lives forever. Yeah, and the funny thing about Gardner especially is he's now on the, like, you know how Baseball Reference for every franchise page has the top, I believe, 20 guys in, in war in franchise history? Yeah. Brett Gardner is on that list for the end. <laughs> he's been around so damn long. Like, he he was on the 2009 title team. You know, he's been in the league 14 years, and all of them have been spent with the Yankees. And yeah, yeah, similar and similar to Marquecas, I think Gardner brings a lot of the same qualities to the table. Um, he's a very well-liked clubhouse guy. He's a he's a well-liked veteran. He plays hard. You know all the all the usual accolades that veterans of that type get. Uh, but he is still useful. You know he runs well. He's a good defender. He can hit right-handed pitching. He's pretty much an ideal fourth or fifth outfielder at this point. And certainly the Yankees are not short on outfielders by any stretch of the imagination. They already have Judge and Hicks and Frazier, and technically I guess Giancarlo Stanton plus you know other options scattered throughout the minors. But certainly that's not a group that has been all that great at staying healthy. Judge in particular, Hicks obviously is coming off Tommy John surgery, although TCE looked fine last year. Frazier's had his injury issues. Stanton is a guy who seems to be made of maybe not glass, but certainly has not been the most durable. So I think Gardner makes a lot of sense in that regard as a guy who could just be there to plug and play. I don't think he's going to be starting. I think the Yankees have made it pretty clear that they want Clint Frazier to start and they want him to play a regular role after what he did last year. But there's definitely value to having a guy like Gardner around who you can just plug in in left or in center, you know, who can pinch run, who can take some late at bat, who can take some uh, end of the game at bats if you need a pinch hitter, and who can just kind of give guys a breather. I mean, I think he's a guy who probably gets maybe two to three starts a week just kind of filling in across the across the outfield. True or false? My father coached Clint Frazier for one year. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. I would believe that because Clint Frazier's a Georgia product, so... You're correct, he did. He loves to remind people that. I love... Love my father, but uh, that is something he he loves. Like yeah, yeah. I, sports, I, I, yeah. Uh, the year the year Frazier got drafted, Sports Illustrated had a feature uh, about him and Austin Meadows because they were both from the same area, right? Uh, yes, I believe so. Well, Clint Frazier yeah, is from they, Loganville, but yeah, I'm not sure 100 percent where Austin Meadows is from. But um, but they're both they're both Georgia high school products, and yes. they're both supposed to go top ten. And I believe they did both go top ten. 
Um, and so there was just a feature on how they, I think they were friends and they were both like super athletes in Georgia who could do anything like not quite on the level of like the, the one I remember is like the, the, the stories of Byron, the stories of Byron Buxton in high school are really something else. Like that dude could do anything. Speaking of a uh, Georgia super athletes. I, um, <laughs> Fisher is back. Um, I, uh, I thought it was funny when um, this is the last thing I'll say on Frazier and we'll move to the, the happier news and Kevin Mather and the Seattle Mariners. Um, I remember seeing him. This was probably, he was in the minors, I think, um, with the Indians. I don't think he'd been traded uh, to the Yankees yet, but it was at a mall in Georgia back when I was still in Atlanta. And I uh, he was with his mom. And when I say this dude had the biggest chain on and he had a, Kyrie Irving jersey and uh, just some flip flops, backwards hat, and just the biggest arms I've ever like. His body made no sense. And if there is one person that I remember just walking by, and that no one knew who he was, like no one in the small, no baseball players are mostly anonymous. And I'm just I, I I paused and I forgot who I was with at the time, but I I I was like I'm 100% certain that is a millionaire baseball player because I remember he got a really good signing bonus and I think he was in number seven pick by the Indians that year, but I was like that dude can rake and I'm 99% certain that's Clint Frazier and I like mouth that's Clint Frazier and his mom saw me do that and was like yeah that's Clint Frazier and it was one of the funniest things and I just kept walking and that, was like, <laughs> that from having from having talked to Clint Frazier that that all scans that he would just have the giant chain in the backwards like. That all scans with Clint Frazier, who is an interesting guy, certainly, um, with a lot of a lot of opinions. I think that, that I do not know. I've not spoken to him in a long time, but his mother just being like, "Yeah, that's Clint Frazier." It was great. Um, not great. Kevin Mather and the Seattle Mariners. Um, he is now gone. Um, by all accounts, should have been gone before this because I was not aware of some other um, bad stuff that. Uh, he has been accused of um he got caught on a noted hot mic at the rotary club um (laughs) which i still don't really understand what all of this actually entails but um talking about manipulating service time intentionally last season for mariners prospects um he is saying the quiet thing out loud and that was the first thing of just like oh so the majority owner of the mariners is going to uh pretend that he was not aware of all of these things that uh Baseball owners do not do this across the sport, that this is just a outlandish, just uh, <laughs> guy who is just on, he was just wrong, and that's not how we do things, and this is just uh, not a thing in baseball. Nothing to see here, nothing to see here, just a rogue, rogue executive in the Mariners organization. Um, so he's the fall guy here, he's out, but um, John, I don't know if you are with me on this, but part of me thinks the Seattle Mariners might might have known across the front office that uh, they were going to manipulate service time for uh for just uh, arbitration reasons and uh team control reasons what do you think or do you think it it was actually just kevin mather yes it was uh, it was just it was kevin mather the lone rogue employee within the <laughs> mariners front office the man who is literally in charge of everything who had a 45 minute long slip of the tongue. And what I love is, <laughs> We've all been there. is that there, there is no more like white executive way for this to happen than for these remarks to be made at a rotary club, which I didn't know was still a thing people did. I thought that had kind of gone out of style in like the eighties. Like I, I didn't know that the rotary club was still uh, uh, an issue that people did, but no, I mean, you're right. Like this is, this isn't just one guy voicing his crackpot opinion. This isn't like when Goose Gossage gets thrown on a radio show every spring or has some reporter come asking him, like, what's wrong with baseball today? And he just spouts off about, like, pitch clocks and black players. Like, that's not what this is. This is the president of the Mariners, a former president now. And I, I, I would like to note that he, he's gone, but he wasn't fired. He resigned. And I imagine that was pressured into resigning. You know, he was told resign or presumably else. But at the same time, like, the Mariners couldn't even bring themselves to fire him. You know, this was just something where, like, let they basically, I imagine, just told him, go away quietly, basically. But, yes, this, this is a reflection of an entire front office, and not, just as, and not just the mindset of the Mariners front office, but the mindset of MLB ownership at large, which is 
delay, 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 save save money, like not even just save money, but cheat players out of money wherever possible. Because what what Mather was talking about wasn't just like, you know, we, we get them to take a slightly smaller contract, and while we understand that that's not, you know, maybe not the best deal for that, like there are pros and cons, but whatever. This was him straight up saying it doesn't matter whether or not a player is ready. He will, like in the case of Jared Kalenic, when he made the point is like there's no way Kalenic makes the opening day roster. It's like, are you saying that like last year, even if there had been a massive COVID outbreak, you would have had me in the outfield before Jared Kalenic? There's no way to interpret that other than we are intentionally keeping Jared Kalenic out of the minor, out of the major leagues in order to gain extra financial control over him which is a pure and simple violation of the collective bargaining agreement and of like, and, and, and it's obviously like a union grievance. Like that's, I imagine part of the other reason why the Mariners forced him out was because the union is almost certainly going to file a grievance over this. And rightfully so, because this wasn't even like an out of context comment. Like the whole thing is available on video and, and credit, uh, credit, especially to the, the bloggers over at lookout landing, um, the, I don't know if they're still SB Nation, but they were a former SB Nation fan blog who really kind of made this, kind of pushed this story into the mainstream. But these comments, they're, they're not out of context. This is just Mathers straight up saying, like, we are going to keep Jared Kalenic in the minors until we get an extra year team control out of him. And that, that's how every team operates at this point. I mean, the, I, know, I, I, I know, I imagine we're going to talk about the Tatis extension, which kind of stands as the nice counterpoint to this. It's like, no, there are some teams that actually care about putting a winning product on the field, regardless of what it costs them. And, you know, obviously the, the reward there is that that player then signs a 14 year long extension to keep him in that uniform, presumably for the rest of his career. This, I mean, but this is the other side of it. And this is the more prevalent side of it, which is that winning. And that I've made this point a million times before. So what's a million at first winning is not as important as the money side of it. It's not as important as the financial side of it. It's not as important as, saving money in arbitration as, as getting an extra year of team control of, you know, not, especially because, I mean, people made the point, it's like our Jared Kalenic and, and for different reasons, Julio Rodriguez, the Mariners' top two prospects, really going to want to sign a long-term deal with a franchise that seems determined to keep them from making as much money as possible. And I think if you ask Mariners' ownership, they'd probably say, well, if they well, do. John, Kevin Mather's gone, really- so actually things are good. <laughs> but the, the thing for me is like, I imagine if you ask Mariners ownership, they'd say, well, of course we'd like to have them around long-term, but if we get six years out of them at basically the minimum possible cost and then they move on, well, that's the business. You know, that, that's how it is sometimes. Yeah. You can't expect us to pay $150 million for every player. That's ridiculous. Which isn't fair to fans. It's not fair to anyone. It's not fair to fans of the Mariners who have not seen that team play in the postseason since 2001, and that streak's not ending this year and for whom Kalenic and Rodriguez represent the first real shot, or the first real, not shot, but the first real, what's the best way to put this? Who represent the first real opportunity, I guess, to see homegrown future stars. And these guys are very highly rated prospects, both of them, for the first time in years, arguably. And to know already that the team has poisoned its relationship with those two players, theoretically at least. I mean... It's as anti-competitive as it gets. You're just admitting point blank that the point of your baseball team is not to win baseball games. It's to play baseball at the most financially in the most financially efficient way possible. Who gives a shit? Like you're telling me Mariners ownership can't afford more than what they've done. And I know this kind of gets into, you know, we're going to get into the Mariners more generally, but I think that kind of gets to what the Mariners whole MO has been for the last, really what seems like forever, but since Jerry DePoto took over, which is just this kind of endless rebuild churn where you're just kind of treading water for an indefinite period of time until the, until the wind, until the, the, the planets align in just the right way so that everyone is productive at just the right financial scale. No, just put together a good team. Have you heard that expression where if you, um, it reminds me of the expression where it's like, if you wait, um, to have kids until you have the, the exact amount of money it costs to have kids, you'll never have kids. It's that whole it, yeah. that speaks to um, winning in baseball or winning in sports. Is like if you are just like, okay, well, until our pipeline is this and we have this and we have this, then we'll do it. Then we'll like right. It, yeah. it's, it's a constant shell game. It's it's always moving back the goalposts of 
well, you know, well, we can't compete with the way things are because we're a small market team or whatever the excuse is in Seattle. You know, with the roster we have is too expensive and too many declining veterans. We need to get younger and more flexible. Then you get younger, you, you get, which getting younger and more flexible is always just covert for we're just going to tear everything down and get rid of the, get rid of the, the veterans who are already here. And then you're on that interminable treadmill of, okay, we're waiting for prospects, we're waiting for prospects, we're waiting for prospects. You know, and you're never doing anything in the interim. I know Seattle did a few things this offseason. Actually, I don't know if I liked their offseason, but I didn't hate it. I thought they made some, actually some pretty nice buy-low moves. But at the same time, they did, clearly didn't do anything to get them any better for 2021 in terms of contention. You know, Contention in 2021 is clearly not the goal for the Seattle Mariners. It's question mark. And I think maybe that, maybe that question mark is kind of taking more the shape of maybe if you squint, you can now see 2022 as a more realistic date for the Mariners to be contenders. But again, that, that issue of when are we going to try to be a major league team again it always seems like every team has a way to keep pushing that date further and further back because of, and now the, the built-in excuse is, well, there was a pandemic and we had a shortened season and our revenues were impacted. How do you expect us to spend that coming off of that? The answer is you have money already and I don't care. I don't care where the money comes from. I don't care how much you have to spend. That, as a fan, is not my problem. You are already getting money from me every single year through ticket sales, through merchandise sales, through the money, I guess, theoretically, I pay my cable company that hosts your, that, you know, that has your regional sports network. You're also getting money from a million other sources that have nothing to do with me, from the regional, from the regional sports networks to the MLB sale, BAMTech. I mean, MLB or MLB just sold, they just sold something else, didn't they? I believe you. Um, MLB teams make money hand over fist. And even if they're not pulling in direct revenue from ticket sales or their revenues are impacted by COVID or whatever the hell else, there's still money coming in from every other. Like, it's, it's ridiculous to me that this is a thing that exists. And this is, the funny thing is we haven't even really touched on the other aspect of what Mather was doing, which was just being super racist, just insanely racist, not only about Julio Rodriguez, who is part of the future of this franchise and should be treated as such, but also about Hisashi Iwakuma, who is one of the best pitchers this team has ever had, is one of the favorites of fans this team has ever had, is, was a large part of the post-Ichiro kind of continued Japanese outreach that this team has had, which has kind of helped cement them as one of the, like, you know, useful, if not usable, teams in Japan for the Major League, for Major League Baseball. Like, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, that, the, the racist aspect of what Mather said is almost kind of like, it's almost equally not surprising because I also would I also believe that most ownership probably thinks this way that their Latin players should learn to speak English and that they shouldn't have to pay for translators and that these guys need to be basically American. None of that surprises me coming from an older, rich white man. That's just kind of how they think by default. But it just does say a lot about where this game kind of is, especially the financial aspect, but also that side of things where it's just. I don't know. The, the game that MLB owners seem to want is a game that doesn't really have any value to anyone else. It's a yeah. game that's all about arbitrage and spreadsheets and numbers and, and numbers, obviously, in the bad way. Just that, that, that is purely about the books and that is purely about how much can we get away with not spending before people essentially riot. And the answer distressingly seems to be almost anything. I think the Orioles have pretty conclusively proven over the last few years, you can do anything you want to your franchise. You can tear it down to the studs and then sell the studs for nickels, and people will still be involved in rooting for your team. I think there are probably some, there are some probably like barriers that I think what the Rockies have done with Nolan Arenado has probably turned off a lot of Rockies fans, but that was mostly in part because they got so little in exchange for him. If that had been a, excuse me, if that had been a trade, closer to the Blake Snell trade where an actual good complement of prospects came back. I think you would have seen a fair number of Rockies fans going, well, it sucks to lose Nolan. He was a great player, but he was getting older and he was expensive. And now we can retool and get, you know, that's just the vocabulary and the, and the, and the, the, the thinking that every, that not every, but that a lot of fans have swallowed because that's what major league baseball ownership is pushing, get cheaper and get more flexible, quote unquote. And the end result is just, the end result is what the Mariners are. 
just this endless churn of 75-win teams that are just kind of going nowhere all the time with the idea that maybe in the next few years a window will open up thanks to three or four good young players. But to me, that's also kind of the thing with baseball. You really need to get lucky and get good with player development to make that work. I mean, we saw that with the Cubs and the Astros. You know, people say, oh, but the Cubs and the Astros did it. Yes, the Astros did it in part because they were one of the smartest teams in Major League Baseball, and they also were cheating to a certain degree. And they also whiffed on two number one picks in the process, and still that worked out. That's incredible luck. The Cubs had the incredible luck of Chris Bryant falling to number two in the draft. These teams also had great player development, great front offices. Like It takes a lot of work to make this strategy work, and that was back in a time when not everyone was doing it. When everyone is doing it, it is much harder to make it work. And I think that at this point, like, I think what you see with the Mariners is kind of what you see around the league is that, like, the goal is not win a World Series. The goal is get to a point where you are enough of a semi-regular contender that you can get into the playoffs and then maybe anything happens and that's really all you want to do because contending to win a World Series is very expensive and requires a lot of work, as you can see with the Padres. So I think that's kind of where the Mariners are, and so it doesn't surprise me that Mather, like you said, Mather just said the quiet part out loud. He said what everyone in that organization has already been practicing and believing. The only, the only uh, thing that just popped up for us was that someone was stupid enough to say it out loud. Absolutely. Um, on a happier note, Fernando Tatis Jr. got a lot of money to play professional baseball for the foreseeable future. Do you... Do you like the extension or do you think there is at least some level of concern based on where he is as a player to this point? I don't really think there's any concern for me. Um, He's shown over the first two seasons of his career that he is one of the best players in baseball already. And I think more importantly than like, yeah, I mean, of course there's concern long-term whenever you sign a guy to a 14 year deal, you know, Tatis is, 20, 21 years old, he's going to be in his mid-30s, mid to late 30s by the time that deal's over. And yeah, like by the time he crosses like, you know, 30, 32, 30, 31, 32, he's going to be declining. And there's always a possibility of a serious career-ending injury somewhere along the line or something else happens. But those are the risks you have to take with that kind of long-term deal. And it's also worth it because it's Fernando Tatis Jr. You see what he's already done. You've seen what he can be. And I think more importantly, like I said, it is proof that there is another way to do this and that it is as simple as you call it because this is the thing with Tatis he was not service time gamed he was put on the roster starting on opening day because Padres the Padres front office was convinced and believed and rightfully so that he could help them right from the get-go and that the best Padres team included Fernando Tatis Jr. on the roster on opening day they 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 did that. They could have played service time games like the Blue Jays did with Vlad Jr. and like a bunch of other teams did with their top prospects. They didn't. And now he's reaping the reward of that. And I have to imagine that that makes that, that, that relationship has been good through the whole because of how they treated him. And that makes it that much easier to sign him to this kind of contract. Especially when you consider that if Tatis, if they had just let Tatis play out his, his first six years and reach the open market, Maybe he gets better than three hundred forty million dollars. Maybe he's maybe he comes close to four hundred million dollars. I certainly think, you know, if he's a, a a potential generational shortstop hitting the market at age twenty seven or whatever it is, he's in line for a four hundred million dollar deal. Um, but I, I mean, I think this is just this is just how baseball should work. Teams should use their good players when they have them, and then they should reward those good players. And those good players should ideally stick around for an entire for their one team for their entire career if they can. How great this! How great is this for Padres fans that they get Fernando Tatis Jr. theoretically at least for the rest of his career? They get to grow up with him, or at least the young ones do. They get to have him around and 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 watch him do cool things for their franchise. And that's how it should be. It shouldn't be you know, the Mookie Betts trade. It shouldn't be the Yu the Darvish trade. It shouldn't be the Blake Snell trade. It should be the Fernando Tatis extension because every team can afford to do this. Every team has the resources to make this kind of deal happen. And it really would be nice if this became the norm around baseball instead of what feels like uh, an aberration in terms of how teams treat their players. Yeah, um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm still pretty cynical about it, but... Um... Hey, you got you to gotta cheer the good things when they happen, and I think part of maybe um, turning this around is just 
uh, more people being forceful about like this is what you should be doing. This is a this is a good thing. Um, more teams should do this. Um, and maybe other teams around the league are like, hey, look at the Padres. Maybe we'll do that a little bit more than we've done. I don't know. I can dream. Um, the Seattle Mariners. We talked about them a little bit um, to start this show. <sighs> um, weird season for them. We already know their top two guys in the pipeline, as you pointed out. Um, when you look at this roster and you look at who's coming, you look at who will play this season, you look at their rotation, you look at where they fared last year. Is there any reason for hope um, for the Mariners in 2021? In 2021, I mean, the West isn't great, but I do think that if you were to rank, like if you were to power rank the West right now, Seattle is definitely fourth. Um, I don't think they're as good as Houston. I don't think they're as good as the Angels. I don't think they're as good as the A's even. I mean, it's not impossible, but I just, you look at the roster now and there's some nice pieces on it, obviously. And there's some, there's some stuff coming theoretically in the future, but there's not a lot of great rotation depth. The bullpen is not strong and the lineup is just not, it just has a, a number of kind of visible and problematic holes in it in part because they're just kind of trying to go with youth and just seeing where that takes them. And I, excuse me, I think that's what you saw this offseason, too, is a team that didn't really bother investing in free agents with the exception of bringing back James Paxton and signing Ken Giles to a deal that's more about 2022 than 2021. So, no, I, I don't really see the Mariners as a contender this year. I think at their ceiling is probably at absolute best a 500 team more realistic, I think, is something in that kind of mid-70s total if a lot of th- if things go right. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sold on the Mariners this year. I think this is, you know, just, I, I think they're still on a bridge to the future. It's just the future, I think seems a little closer now that they have Kalenic and Rodriguez, but I think it's also a matter of, okay, you know, especially given what Mather said, like, fine, great. You have some pieces of the future, but when are you actually going to turn around and start spending to kind of complement that team? Is this a Padres situation where you're just waiting for those prospects to come up? Or is this more a situation where you're just going to try to keep running low payrolls and hope that, you know, you maybe are just an 85-win team in perpetuity? Yeah, I um, I don't know. And then <laughs> I just – I don't know what their vision is. Like, I – the Rangers are just sputtering. Like, that's their vision. It's just a sputter until you make it. Hire guy. They, they're in the stage of let's remember some guys and uh, bring Chris Young in there and uh, good for them. We'll get to them next week. Um, the A's, they're like, we'll keep floating and we'll, we'll see what happens. The, the Astros are like, we're going to ride out the, the end of this, this core. And, uh, who knows? Maybe we'll go on another run like we did last year. The angels are like, Hey, we, we <laughs> we have no idea what to do with all this money and all of these top tier talent. Uh, we, we, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what to do with their hands. The Mariners, I just, I just don't understand how the Mariners can look at the ALS right now. And you pointed this as well as just, and just being like, Let's just not really do anything. Let's just bring back James Paxson. Let's take some flyers on the Paxsons and the Giles. Let's not do anything to really beef up this offense. Let's not do anything to make sure that um, when our young guys come up, they're going into a situation where there's a lot of good vets and there's a lot of guys that can help them and contribute and to work with them. Um, there's no Dexter Fowlers on this roster. There's no Jason Haywards. There's no... There's no Freddie Freemans. There's no guys on this roster right now that I that I look at and I go, okay, they can bridge, they can help um, usher in um, a new era of Mariners baseball where the fans can get excited, that you can have good, expensive veterans that would be an overpay, but at the same time would just balance out this roster a little bit more because I just, this offense, man, it looks it looks anemic. Yeah, and that's kind of the big. I think, I think if you're the Mariners front office, and like I don't want to necessarily want to defend it, but I can understand it. That you know, yes, the AL West is a little on the weaker side, but even the Astros, A's, and Angels, as they were currently constructed, even before the offseason started, I think we're still better teams in Seattle. And so, if you're this Mariners front office, you're thinking, okay, what would we have needed to do to make this team a true contender in this division? And it would have required a lot of work. And even to a certain point, I don't know if there's enough that can be done to this roster as it currently exists to make it a contender. Because, I mean, like you said, there are, there are lineup. Like, right now, I think uh, 
you know, you look at their projected lineup, and the great majority of it does not look to be any better than league average offensively. J.P. Crawford, Dylan Moore, um, Jose Marmalejos, Ty France, Luis Torrens. Like, those, those are not guys you're really Kyle counting. Kyle like, is literally the definition of 100 WRC+. plus. Like, he is the prototype for that kind of player. Yeah, and he's probably the third best hitter in this lineup, if not second. Yikes. You know, it, depending on how you feel about Kyle Lewis, uh, the potential of Evan White, and whether or not Mitch Haniger is back from the numerous, numerous injuries that have basically uh, put his career completely on ice. So, yeah, this lineup is a problem, and I don't. That's I think that's probably. I don't know if it's that or the bullpen that gives me more. But honestly, probably it's the lineup. You know, a bad bullpen will hurt you, but a bad lineup you just can't escape from. You know, that's every night putting up three, four runs at most, and just you know putting all the pressure on your pitchers to keep the other team off the board. And that may work to a certain degree in whatever the hell the Mariner Stadium is called now. I don't even remember, but it's Safeco. It's not really. It, it's always it, going to be Safeco. It's, it's always, always going to be Safeco. Hell, the hell with it. It's always going to be the Kingdom in my mind. Uh, resurrect the Kingdom and go back to playing in the Kingdom. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, and I understand. Like, there there are pieces on this roster where I think they're in a similar situation to other rebuilding teams, where it's like, let's see what we got in these guys because, you know, obviously Kyle Lewis has shown that he, you know, that he. Can, he has that first-round talent still in there. You know, it's worth building around him, seeing what he can do. J.P. Crawford's only 26 and was once a top prospect. Like, it's worth taking a shot and giving him a full season, see what he can do. Evan White's only 25. Ty France is only 27. Marmalejos is only 28. Shed Long is only 25. Like, Braden Bishop is only 27. There are guys you want to give them a shot to see, okay, can these guys be part of the next contending Mariners team? And if not, where do we have to upgrade going forward? And I understand that. It's just, again, the, the bummer and the frustration that is treating a major league season basically like an endless spring training, where it's not about the wins and the losses, but it's about player evaluation. It's treating the major leagues as the minor leagues. You know, instead of, instead of getting uh, already like productive veterans or productive players you know who can play, it's trying out guys like Marmalejos and Ty France and Luis Torrens where you're like, maybe this guy can contribute, and if he doesn't, well, so what? This team's not only going to win 75 games anyway. It's not like it makes a damn difference. I mean, it should make a difference because, again, the goal should be to win, not just you know run like a player evaluation lab. But, yeah, the, the lineup is a problem. The lineup is a problem, and the bullpen is a problem. I, I liked picking up Rafael Montero, who's oddly like just had this weird second career as a kind of as a hard-throwing reliever that's actually you know he's, he's done pretty well with. But the rest of that bullpen does not really inspire a whole lot of confidence. There are not a lot of high strikeout guys in this bullpen, with the exception of Montero, and if he's healthy, Keenan Middleton. Otherwise, it's a lot of kind of back. It's a lot of back of the bullpen guys who are just being pushed up in the roles that they can't handle. Bullpen. The bullpen's really been an issue for the Mariners for a while. Um, I mean, the thing is, it should be better next year, assuming both Giles and Andres Munoz come back healthy from Tommy John surgery. And I do think if you look at what the Mariners have done overall that obviously 2021 is not the play, it's 2022 and beyond. I think the only real move they made for 2021, purely for 2021, was James Paxton. And I think that was realizing more than anything else, we need innings. We don't really have a lot of great internal options right now. Our, our pitching is not really ready to, our young pitching is not really ready to contribute in that way. We have a lot of question marks in how much we'll get out of, you know, Yusei Kikuchi and Justice Sheffield and Justin Dunn. Um, and Paxton is a guy, he's also a fan favorite. He came relatively cheap. You know, it's a good, it's a good buy-low on the Mariners' part with very little risk involved. But I think otherwise, you know, you're looking at guys like Chris Flexen, who got a multi-year deal coming out of Korea, as yet another guy where it's like, we'll see how he does in 2021, but if he does well, then it's something we can bank on for 2022. And, you know, I, I think, again, you look all across the roster, I think a lot of what's being done is 2021 is yet another year of just kind of player evaluation, see what these young guys we currently have can do while we wait for uh, reinforcements to come, both in terms of the guys we have in the system who are already signed like Giles or in the farm system like Kalenic and Rodriguez and uh, Logan Gilbert and Taylor Trammell and their other prospects and just, you know, kind of wait. And see. It's, it's almost kind of a wait and see, I think, ultimately. Yeah, but we shall see. What do you, in the happier note with the Mariners, what, what do you think my, uh, Kyle Lewis's ceiling is what, what do you think his absolute if everything goes right for him what where does he get to as a player i think he could be you know I, 
I don't know. It's tough because he had so many – he had those serious injuries after he got drafted with his knees, and you know, you kind of thought, like, oh, maybe that's going to, uh, you know, keep him from reaching what his potential ceiling is. Because I know uh, that that draft year, I was talking to a fair number of, of, of draft guys who really, really liked him coming out of Mercer as this really contact-oriented, like, just uh, potential five-tool guy. I mean, it's hard to say. You look at his numbers from last year. He's a, he's, he played very well in the outfield. He's got good plate discipline. He's pretty good at squaring balls up, but his, his, he strikes out a lot. He swings and misses a lot. His hard hit rate was not very high. Like, you, I think what you want to see, like, granted what you have, like, what you want to see this year, I think, if he's going to reach a ceiling of kind of regular starter slash kind of uh, semi-regular all-star is, you want the swing and miss to go down, obviously. You want better results against fastballs. He really got eaten up by fastballs last year. He only hit 229 on them with a 413 slugging percentage. That's not going to cut it for for a middle of the order or top of the order hitter. You know, he's got to be able to do damage on fastballs. You know, that's true of any hitter, but it's especially true here. If you're a guy who has a lot of swing and miss in his profile, you've at least got to be able to square up fastballs. So I think that's probably the biggest thing for Lewis is the swing and miss right now. Um, that's probably what keeps him from kind of taking that next step up. Uh, if he can get that under control, if he can, you know, does, I mean, the, the the walks were a nice sign. It does seem like he has a, a good, at least a good eye in terms of, you know, what he can offer at and what he can't. I think what you want to see is better numbers on the stuff in the strike zone, less swing and miss, more contact, and especially better work against the fastball. That's what I'm going to keep an eye on for Fred Lewis this season. If you start to see that, then I think the ceiling really is like regular all-star. That's that's a big win for them if they can get there with him. Um, last thing, and we'll wrap up on the Mariners. Um, outside of the big two in their pipeline, who who should Mariners fans be be excited about? Uh, I think Logan Gilbert is their number one pitching prospect. Uh, probably going to be at Double A this year. Uh, has looked good so far. I mean, coming out of um, excuse me, the first round pick all the, all the way back in twenty uh, in twenty eighteen, which feels like a million years ago at this point. But you know, as as Pitched, got a uh, had good num- good strikeout numbers uh, in Double A last year when he or not last year sorry in 2019 there was no Double A last year. Um, definitely seems like a guy who if he gets you know he's obviously going to get not obviously but more likely not going to start the year again at Double A to get a, a quick uh, a quick sign of you know what he can do. And if he looks good, I think that the, you know maybe there's a chance that depending on where the Mariners are, he could get the bump up to the majors some point mid season. Uh, obviously, another name to keep an eye on is Taylor Trammell, the former Padres top prospect, whose career has kind of gone off the rails a little bit. Did not really hit back in 2019 at all. Um, a guy certainly who it, it depends. Like, what, I I don't think we have any numbers for him based off or off the alternate site. I don't know if the Mariners provided that data anywhere, but certainly a guy who still has all the tools uh, to be something special. And another guy who's going to get a shot at Double A to, to show he's got. And then I think their number one pick in last year's draft, Emerson Hancock, um, big college arm. There's you know certainly fast rising potential there. I, I think the thing with big college arms is there's always the fast rising potential of if, if being a starter doesn't really work out, then you know they can transfer over to the bullpen and maybe be of value there. I think certainly Hancock's going to get every opportunity to prove that he's a starter. And the only thing is like obviously you know as with everybody else. Uh, losing the 2020 season was especially hurt, hurtful for guys who just got drafted, who didn't get that chance to adjust to pro ball. Because um, ordinarily, too, as a college arm, you would probably have seen Hancock starting the year at advanced A ball because last year he probably would have gone from rookie league straight to low A. Um, I think more likely than not, he probably starts this year at low A ball. Um, but we will see. I think it's, you know, still again the number six pick of last year's draft. Obviously, that's the kind of guy you keep an eye on. And then there are a fair number of bullpen arms they have who in particular uh, Sam Delaplane and Wyatt Mills could probably come up uh, relatively soon for them. Um, both of them have some good strikeout numbers. Uh, both of them got to double A or beyond it in 2019, so they're kind of there already. And then some younger guys, I think that they've plucked off of waivers or picked up in trades like Joey Gerber or Johan Ramirez, who, again, some good strikeout numbers who are just kind of, they're, they're more bullpen filler, I think, than anything else. But the rest of the prospects, the rest of the good prospects on this team uh, with the exception of, oh, I forgot to mention George Kirby, but he's not gotten above low A ball, so I don't think um, he's one. Of, he's an, another one of their first-round picks uh, back in 2019. I can't imagine you're going to see him until next year at the earliest. But 
I think those are the those are the non Rodriguez Kalenic guys you probably want to keep an eye on. And I still do think that there's a decent chance Kalenic could break major league camp with this team, um, depending where they would want to play him. Obviously, the current weak spot in that outfield right now is probably Marmalejos, who is a left fielder. Um, I get the sense Kalenic could probably play anywhere. But I'm, obviously, Kyle Lewis are going to want to give him time. I imagine they're going to want to give Mitch Hanniger a shot to show that he's still got anything left in the tank. But there is there is an opportunity there, I think, for, for Kalenic. And to a certain degree, I think there's also going to be a lot of pressure on the Mariners to carry Kalenic out of spring training if he looks good, if only to... Um, if only to kind of make Mather's comments essentially look like, you know, to kind of dull Mather's comments, be like, no, 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 we're not trying to suppress salary or anything. We are, we genuinely want our best players um, to, to start the team, to start, to start the year with the team. In fact, here's Jared Kalanick. Yay, we did it. Like, I, I do think that might actually be a thing we see with the Mariners is they might actually feel pressured to put Kalanick on the major league roster in the wake of what Mather said. All right. Uh, John, is there anything uh, you would like to plug as we wrap up here today? Uh, no. Prospects Week is over at Fangraphs. We're still doing all our fun stuff, so come on over. You know, as, as you mentioned, the season is starting way sooner than you would, than you would think. Um, so we'll be starting, you know, we'll have our positional player rankings rolling out relatively soon. We'll start getting into more kind of season preview stuff now that the off season is, for the most part, over. Mm. So, yes, come around for that and... Uh, as you mentioned before, sign up for a membership. It starts as low as $3 a month or $50 a year for ad-free browsing. Helps us keep doing our fun stuff and make sure that we, uh, that we keep the get, getting to do fun stuff going forward. Awesome. Well, go do that. For that guy up there in Manhattan, New York, John Taylor, for myself down here in Knoxville, Tennessee, that is all I've got, sir. Thank you so much for the time, per usual, and get excited to talk about the Rangers next week. Sounds good, man. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.